It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. When she was 35, Kate Bowler was diagnosed with stage four cancer. She had a thriving career as a divinity school professor and author and was married with a young son. Illness was that feeling of being like stripped down to the studs and you have to, you just, you're the bare bones of something. And that was maybe this most important moment in which I realized I'm not very much, a life, any life isn't very much on its own. Being sick brought Bowler face to face with many of the spiritual questions she had spent her career digging into. She had worked hard, tried to be good, and wanted to be rewarded for that, like anyone else. She wanted life to be fair, and it wasn't. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. In her academic work and her best-selling books, Bowler picks apart the platitudes we hear and tell ourselves about life and suffering. In the real world, and in the world she found herself in post-cancer diagnosis, simplistic messages about fate and deserving often don't hold up. She talks frankly and openly in this interview at the festival about what it's like to lose certainty in your body, your health, and your future. Krista Tippett, the host of the podcast and public radio show On Being, interviews Bowler. Here's Tippett. I actually think of Kate Bowler every time I look at the coffee cup in my office that she sent me, which says, No Cure for Being Human, (laughs) which is the title of another of her books, which have touched millions. I love Kate's way with words, her brilliant natural wit, which you will no doubt experience, her allergy to every platitude, (laughs) her wisdom in summoning better ways and words that we can bring to each other. She's one of the most grown-up, vividly whole, refreshing humans I know. So I read her, what I think of as her core text, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, when it first came out. Was that in 2018? Yeah, that's right. All right. It is a... If you haven't read it, it's a poetic and powerful reflection on how she moved through learning at 35 that she had cancer and and at that time was told that she would probably die very soon. She had a husband she'd loved since she was 15. They had a very young son. And I read her book again in preparation for being here tonight with such admiration Five years and a changed Kate in a changed world later. It's not just that some version of everything is happening to many of us at any given time. We've also just gone through and scarcely begun to metabolize from a great big everything happening altogether. Our collective body is also having to come to terms with struggles, life and death struggles, long in coming, with brokenness at cellular levels, no fixes in sight. Yet we also inhabit a time that calls us and in many ways equips us as never before to live with a new magnitude of wholeness into the great questions of what it means to be human and how we want to live, and who we will be to each other. And those are embodied versions of the eternal questions Kate illuminates as a theologian and a human being. (laughs) So let's start. As I believe you know, I often start my interviews with a question about the spiritual background of a life or a childhood, um, because I find that that is such a soft searching place in us. Mm -hmm. And it's often a place where a lot of the questions that we end up pursuing for the rest of our lives emerge. And that spiritual background can be anything. It it can be a presence, it can be an absence, but there's something there. But you have such an interesting beginning. So would you, yeah, just tell us a little bit about the spiritual background of your childhood. Oh yeah, I guess it's a bit of a grab bag. Uh, My mom is probably the only person in the world who was converted by a tract. By a what? A tract, like a fold out threefold, 
Like she was walking in a student center and someone handed her a tract and she was like, me? Sinner in the eyes of God? Well, all right. And then like, that was it. And uh, she's like a really smart lady. She has a PhD. I mean, she's a joy. And uh, I just really love that about her. And so she became a Christian kind of later in life. And my dad read Augustine and he thought like, this is a, this is a worldview. And their discovery, I guess, of spiritual questions as being the thing that you can learn to hang all of your thought hooks on was something that I watched them experience. And it made me feel like spiritual questions were the kindest, most interesting, nosiest way to get to sort of the marrow of the universe Mm. feeling. And then we went to a Mennonite church. So it's all just cheese eaters and furniture makers and... Yeah, in Canada. Yes, right, in the yeah. middle of Canada, so, in yeah. the lesser-known part of Canada. You know, you, I, 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 I've never done this before, but you write so wonderfully about the Mennonites. So I want to read some of your favorite lines. <laughs> My favorite lines about your religious, your, your religious homeland. Um, you said, I grew up on the prairies of Manitoba, Canada, surrounded by communities of Mennonites. I learned at my Anabaptist Bible camp about a poor carpenter who taught that a simple life was a good one. Though most Mennonites abandoned bonnets and buggies long ago, they kept their concerns about the greediness of modern life. You also wrote, I had been taught in my Anabaptist Bible camp that there were a few things closer to God's heart than pacifism, simplicity, and the ability to compliment your neighbor's John Deere turbo combine (laughs) without envy. (laughs) Though Mennonites are best known by their bonnets and horse-drawn buggies, they are, for the most part, plain-clothes capitalists like the rest of us. I adore them. I married one. (laughs) And finally, Mennonites are people with the land in their blood (laughs) and a hopeless obsession with simplicity, frugality, pacifism, and jello salads. I'm pretty sure they are genetically predisposed to singing in four-part harmony and making thick braided breads and homemade jam. (laughs) Yes, they have some kind of pact with Satan for the gift of song. It's very strange. But yeah, I mean, every, but what they can do with jello, I found uh, deli meat, (laughs) sliced deli meat one time, and I stood at a buffet table. I was like, who did this? Take responsibility. They really are a wonder. Well, so I think I'd love to ask, what in that spiritual formation of your childhood, that, yeah. that universe unto itself, taught you about being in a body mm-hmm. and maybe came back to you with comfort or vexation or confusion yeah. um, when your life as a young woman, as a young mother, took that unexpected turn? Yeah. Yeah, I guess because illness was that feeling of being like stripped down to the studs. And you have to, you just, you're the bare bones of something. And that was maybe this most important moment in which I realized I'm not very much, a life, any life isn't very much on its own. And Mennonites were the ones who really taught me how to be a group, like how to be a weird, moving, alive, symbiotic herd. They just kind of move in and they're just like tapping on your fence boards, trying to figure out which is rotten. And then they're, without your permission, taking your house apart. And that's exactly the energy that I needed when I knew that most of my life was unfeasible. Like I I was going to have medical bills I couldn't pay. I knew I would likely cause most of the people in my family to have to take out loans against their crappy bungalows. I mean, I I I was gonna take them all down. And so to have all of them kind of lift me up and feed me so aggressively Hmm. was exactly what I needed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, somewhere you wrote, perhaps the most oddly comforting thing about joining the Mennonite Club, they insist that suffering never be done alone. Um, I I do want to also note that you, you know, the the work, the the scholarly work you did in that chapter of your life... um, which took this turn, but kind of as you moved into this, you were a professor, and uh, it might sound like there's no connection between these two things, but actually this research you did and this writing you did was much more than tangential, ultimately. So I want you to talk about that, but I I did really (laughs) appreciate this confession in your book where you did 
all the things, including wailing, right, and uh, that one would expect. And you said you also confessed, but one of my thir- first thoughts when you got this diagnosis was also, oh, God, this is ironic. I recently wrote a book called Blessed. (laughs) (laughs) So, and this actually also, just before we leave the Mennonites behind, um, started with you getting really fascinated by hearing about a new Mennonite megachurch. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I, I, it broke a part of my brain that puts information together. Because I was on the one, Winnipeg, Manitoba, the glories of the prairies, please visit, has only one fast road. And they put a traffic light up on it. And I was sitting there at the light full of Christian rage. And, uh, and I thought that I was watching a factory empty. And it turns out that this pop-up building was in fact a megachurch in the middle of the Canada's largest megachurch, and that it was mostly attended by Mennonites, and that people I knew had recently contributed to Pastor's Appreciation Day, in which their pastor had been given a motorcycle, and then he rode it around on stage. And I was like, absolutely not. This is for Americans. And I like went on such a tear about it. Yeah. And But this the question stayed with me is, what is it about all of us that wants a story about God's special love that then would yield itself in health and in maybe in some wealth and maybe in family wholeness and togetherness? And I thought, well, if it can happen in Mennonite world, it can happen in anywhere. And that truly began an obsession. And so you went down this rabbit hole of what is known as the prosperity gospel, yeah. which is um, which is a Pentecostal movement and and... That's such a such a big, wide story also that we don't have time to go into here. But I, I want to say, in this room, it's, it's so easy to make fun of something like the prosperity gospel and some of the ways that it, that it gets reported and caricatured, um, you know, when we are secular and erudite. Um, what I really appreciate about the, the book you wrote, and I mean, you, you have your critique, um, which one would have of anything one was studying closely enough, but I appreciate how you so looked for what, was, what is human and understandable, and what this particular religious movement also says about the rest of us. Yeah. So, you know, so here's a, a passage. I, I did discover that the prosperity gospel encourages people, especially its leaders, to buy private jets and multi-million dollar homes. <laughs> as evidence of God's love. But I also saw the desire to escape. Believers wanted an escape from poverty, failing health, and the feeling that their lives were leaky blankets. Some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of of their past and the pain of their present. They wanted a modicum of power over the things that ripped their lives apart at the seams. When you when you see it that way, yeah. you realize you're seeing, yeah. you're seeing the human condition and you're also seeing the American dream. Yes. Yeah. I, th- I, thought, I thought I'd written like a very gentle history, but I didn't feel like a strong sense of identification with like the desperation of their prayers and hopes yeah. until I was the person praying like without like the ugly kind of crying in prayer, the undignified sort of, God, save me, save me, save me. Like most of my prayers waking up were just like, save me, save me, save me, save me, save me. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this anymore. Make me someone different. Like, isn't that in your power? And that sounded exactly like prayers that I had listened to for a decade. And I thought, well, wasn't I a bit, you know, never quite above it. And that uh, breaking apart feeling has oddly like served me very well because now I feel kind of back to the basics yeah. of like, this, these are the things I wanted all along. I wanted to know that it was possible to grow up and develop gifts that then you then get to use in the world. And um, to see any dream come true feels like a miracle. But when it's yours, you're like, man, didn't, didn't I really hope that I deserved that? Mm-hmm. I think also because you were... Um Canadian, you, <laughs> you, you experience this with a, a little bit of more clarity, which is not necessarily to say 
detachment. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> well, because we had a lot of evangelicalism in our Mennonite heritage. and But I do remember some of us had been reading like Baptist magazines and got a little bit confused. And they had this pray around the flagpole moment. And we were just like holding hands around a Canadian flag. And someone's like, what are we doing? And we're like, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. So we just, I mean, we've managed to leave some of especially civil religion behind, but (laughs) just every now and then we're like, did I borrow this or is this original to my faith? And I I think that, you know, some of the things, just, just what, what it identified for you is something like how we, even though if you just have a normal life, you know, this isn't true, but we, we kind of expect life to be fair. Yes. Yes. And we're really shocked when it isn't. Yeah. And it feels part of a, I feel like wherever you kind of drop the anchor in your story about spirituality, or I'm just thinking like at a big theological framework, if you drop the anchor on, we are made good, God loves us, it's a pretty short road to, (laughs) well, if God made me to love me, shouldn't Shouldn't, therefore, some things maybe work out for this poor, hapless creature? (laughs) And so it's, I had really, I had really imagined that there was going to be a strong causal relationship, just like it is in the prosperity gospel. Is God good? Is God fair? Mm -hmm. And like, I wanted, I wanted fairness in a way I'd never wanted before. And that, so that was really present, even though you'd been observing these things as an academic. um, Those I think you found that those sets of assumptions were very much alive in you when you got your cancer diagnosis and yeah. how you moved into that. I think I, and, and part of it was, I remember reading like a, a history of the middle class and it said um, they're, they rely on optimism, hard work, and a sense of lightly proximate horizon, like they're good at future thinking. And I was like, oh crap, I thought that was my personality, but it turns out I was just middle class. Right. <laughs> so that's disappointing. Um, <laughs> But I think part of my belief in a meritocracy came from the fact that I, I, I really did grow up believing that if I scrapped it out, that of, out of anything, I could count on my hard work. Yeah, and, and you were led to believe, you were trained and educated yeah. to believe that. All of us were. Yeah, as well. I mean, there is a part in academia where you do assume it'll break your heart at some point, and you should probably just give up on the meritocracy, but it was in there. It was really in there somewhere. <laughs> um. I was, you know, I was also really struck by how you talked about, um, so, so it turns out it's not fair. It turns out all those things you believe are not true, and you're, you're on the other side of those assumptions. Yeah. And you, you inherit a lot of things. One of them is a vocabulary. I mean, you, you describe it as this foreign country of cancer. Yeah. And suddenly there's this new language that you're supposed to be fluent in. And... Um, and then these identities are very statistical and dehumanizing, really. Yes. Uh, stage four, 30% chance, survivor, remission, incurable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember trying to, just the slipperiness of all the language. Like you say something like, hey, not to put you on the spot, but I'm coming out of surgery. And I'm like, hey, not to, not to make you feel weird, but like, would you mind just looking at my chart and telling me, like, what are the chances you think that I might live? And, you, and I say it in a tender way, like, when the lights are still out in the middle of the night in the hospital, and I don't want to put the guy in a weird position, but I just want somebody to be honest with me. And then I can see how quickly this poor young doctor has to translate it into the language of outcomes, because langu- they, they can't speak the language of certainty. Right. But we're just floating far away. Right. And then, you know, I don't know. I mean, so I, it's the most embodied thing, and you're getting what you're getting is t- completely cerebral. Absolutely, yeah. And and they're trained. <laughs> I had the weirdest moment where um, I apologize so much for the words that I'm about to use. Uh, really, I can <laughs> okay, tell. I'm not on public radio anymore. <laughs> I can tell the the, the, dread, the dread of what I'm about to describe. But this resident was came in and in my normal hospital room. And um, he was like, uh, "Ms. Bowler, we're going to take, we're going to remove a drain, and it's you're just going to feel a, de- a deep pinch and a hard pull, and then after your surgery, this is just an important part of your, and then and then you'll be able to go home." And I was like, "Wait, you're you're going to take something out like here now in this normal room where everything is like there's a window, there's a there's no one else here, it's just you," and. Um, 
<laughs> he had been my like most dispassionate doctor where we like we were like in other planets together like apart far apart and, uh, and so <laughs> he walks toward me like this and I was like oh no we cannot we cannot have our hands up like a terrified magician <laughs> when you when you come up to me so I was like if you wouldn't mind just like I'm not to be trying to be weird, but could you just leave and then come back and pretend to be a magician so that I can go into a different mental place for you to do this? So uh, yeah, he came back in. There was a lot of saying knock, knock, knock because it was just a curtain. He really did it. He went, he left the room. He came back in with his hands raised and, uh, and he was like, knock, knock, knock. And I was like, it's just a curtain. Um, he comes in. He's like, all right, close your eyes, deep pinch, hard pull. And it was, the most intensely internal feeling I've ever had. And then he pulls and I open my eyes and my blood is all over his white gown. And what looks like 200 feet of tubing is in front of us. And he has his hands up still and he goes, ta-da. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's it, we're people. We're both, we're both people again. <laughs> That must have been a bit of a relief. I, he comes to my lectures. <laughs> yeah, he, we're like buds now. But the truth is, I needed one person to cross the divide yeah. from doctor world into magician world. And, I, and he did it. <laughs> you know, it just, I mean, it just feels like there's all this mind over body, yeah. mind over matter jujitsu, and actually the primacy <laughs> of the body, which has always been true, is just asserting itself. Yes. That's so true. And even like, you know, when you get terrible news, I found that I was just like, honestly, the most precious thing in the whole world to me is right before any surgery, everyone leaves. And it's the worst moment in the whole world. And you really don't get to control anything that's gonna happen. And until that, you exercised what you felt was agency and you advocated for yourself and you looked things up on the internet. and. And in that one moment, you realize that for the most part, your body, you're going to be a passenger in whatever happens to you. And then they wheel you down a hallway, and then all of a sudden, everything's very cold because they keep those surgical <laughs> theaters nice and crisp. And in that one moment, I swear to God, every time, all I've ever wanted is for one person just to reach out and to grab my hand. And in that moment, someone always sees the fear in my eyes right before the mask goes on and like just to feel that little squeeze. Mm -hmm. In that moment, you're a body again, mm -hmm. right at the moment where you have to let it go. Mm -hmm. And learning to let it go and then how to try to step back into your body is probably one of the weirdest things I've ever like been trying to get used to. Wow. You know, um, so in contrast to all of that, that statistical language, a word that seems to have felt so true to you early on is precarity. Yeah. Would you talk about what that word means to you now? Oh my gosh. I, it's, Dorothy Day, the Catholic activist, used it so beautifully to talk about life living in New York in community with people with insecure housing. And if you compare how she describes it with other theologians who imagined like a stable universe full of certainties, I just love the way she describes precarity as contingency, the fragility of your life, the feeling like things can be taken away in an instant, but not like it's a bad thing. That it's just, that it's not the thing that we have to get over to get back to the person we were before. Right. And I found that really emotionally satisfying because what if, what if the new is just, is just the way it's always going to be? Mm -hmm. And that I'm never imagining that a return to a solid foundation is probably braver existential work than I had been ready to do, but that I need to be ready to do. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you'd also talk about um, really how your sense of time utterly shifts yeah. and on so many different levels. Yeah. Well, yeah, right. With outcome language and the pretend certainty of, like, for the first year, I thought that all of it was the last time. So it was the last Christmas. It was the last spring buds. It was the last everything. And that had a beautiful and terrible beauty to it. 
And also as a nightmare for family experiences in which you're like, we're having an amazing experience. <laughs> you're shrieking into the wind. Um, but the, after, after the initial sort of cliff uh, became more kind of vine to vine feelings, I got really good at the interval between scans. Mm -hmm. So at first it was three months and I got amazing at 90 days. I could get a scan, make a new plan, live a life, throw a costume party, <laughs> just take a trip. Um, but, and then it kind of became six months and then, and now it's been a year. And the, the beauty of that is I can feel the fullness of how life, how much, it's almost like I need, I need so much life to be on one side of the seesaw in order to manage how terrified I am mm -hmm. to walk up to the edge again. So I, I, don't, I don't know how to live exactly with life as a chronic condition, but I did know how to think about horizons in a way where I knew how to right-size my hopes in relationship mm -hmm. to time. Yeah, so, you know, when you write about, uh, right, you had the, and so it, so it turned out yeah. that there were three different kinds of cancer this could be. Yeah. And the third one, which they called the magic cancer, a theme in your health journey, yeah. um, meant that you could, were that it was treatable. Yeah. And, um, that's a perfect word. I wouldn't have used that word. And I think that's right. Is that a good, yeah, that a good? I, that's a perfect word. Oh, yeah. I have to say, you know, one of the things you are so clear about is how awkward we are, not only with our own suffering, but with the suffering of others. And if I, if I say anything up here that is not good, you tell me. <laughs> oh my gosh. Back. But you're, I mean, you're, um, you're, poetry with words really does help with the, because most of the words we use are just blunt instruments. Like I remember this, this one woman sat down with me and she over dinner and she turns to me and she goes, and you're terminal. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> I was like, oh no, no. Terminal knows like, means like I can know for sure when I'm going to die. And she goes, good for you. <laughs> Just, as okay. if I was just being like a consummate little positive thinker. I just, I have treasured that. Wait, wait, but the one, the story I really like that you tell is I think you're wearing a Tanya Harding costume <laughs> at a party. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. great. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah. I was dressed as Tanya Harding. <laughs> and. And she she said this. We were all dancing, and someone looks over across our group and is like, "So I guess you didn't die, <laughs> or something like that." And I was just like, "Not yet. You know, like, you're not really sure what you're supposed to say." I think you. <laughs> I think you. I think you also wrote. Um, I said not yet. Yeah. Internally reconsidering my commitment to past. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, there was a lot of like, um, things will be great in heaven. <laughs> As your heaven is your true home. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> do you want to go first? <laughs> it's really an awful and wonderful and terrible. But yeah, and I do it all the time to other people. Like the desperate effort to connect with people means that I'm like bringing up awful issues all the time. They're like, they actually, this is a children's birthday party, Kate. <laughs> so not really where I want to talk about my bladder cancer. So that's fair. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's go back to time. We'll, we'll probably come back to this. But um, all right, so also this image um, of when something like this happens, and I think maybe all of us have our own personal individual example of what that something is. Yeah. There's a before and there's an after. And all of life yes. is divided that way. I mean, I think the pandemic was that civilizationally. Yeah. Um, that's also a different way of yeah. living in time. Yes. And I wondered, as a theologian, because I've been thinking a lot in these last years of the pandemic of, you know, the, the, the biblical notions of, and it's not just the, the ancient Greek, which also translated into yeah. New Testament thinking, the of Kronos time and Kairos time. Yeah. Did you think about that? Well, Kate, tell me Kronos versus Kairos again, because I now now you're being really? beautiful and cosmopolitan really? lady, and I want um, you to say. Well, no, Kronos is Kronos is actually the way we organize our society, as though it works like a clock. It's yeah. Newton. It's you know one thing follows the other, and yeah. it's the time of deadlines and schedules and calendars and accomplishment that is 
progressive across time. Yeah. Um, and then kairos are these, um, these moments of inbreaking, right? That disrupt everything that came before. Yeah. And it can be an instant, yeah. and it can be a century. I, I think we may be in a, one of those centuries. Yes, that's lovely. And I, but I was just, it is this, it's the before and the after with yeah. a capital B and a capital A. I guess I thought a lot about, um, my friend Luke Brotherton said this, where he was like, oh, you're in apocalyptic time. And I was yeah. like, ooh, creepy, and yes. Because uh, it has, where, you know, the sense of fragility, the world is about to end, even yeah. if it's just yours. I mean, we've felt it collectively. I remember taking a class on um, apocalypticism in 1999 with Y2K, and we were all like, what's going to happen? <laughs> yeah. But the, the, where we sense collectively our, our fragility, and, and then we are likely to make rash decisions. You know, we, yeah. we can, which is actually one of the fun parts. But come on, what is the, what, I, well, I can't believe this is escaping me, but what is the actual Greek word, what does it mean, apocalypse? It doesn't mean the cataclysm. To oh, it means cataclysm. revealing. It means, and uh, yeah, a veil being lifted. Yeah, yes. Which I, you see the, the bright clarity of yeah. a proximate ending. Yeah. And, and then some people thrive in that scenario. And, and then other people. And it's very hard on most of us. We can't live there forever. No, we can't live there. And then as opposed to ordinary time, which is how most, you know, calendars are organized or mm -hmm. religious and otherwise. And then, um, and then tragic time, which is this slow, the slowness in which you can walk outside and wonder why anyone would have the right to eat a decorative salad. Because, like, don't you know that? And that feeling of don't you know that is also like a intense liminal season, and, and we also can't live there forever. Right. Um, I do want to say, you, um, you got very, very impatient, you probably still are, about people complaining about aging. <laughs> I try to be nice. I do. <laughs> I am kind of a dick about it, though. <laughs> Depending. Um, yeah, I guess maybe for a bit. I think... It was in part because I just I, I would reach the edge of my brain every time, uh, every time people were planning for retirement, and I just couldn't I just couldn't picture the sort of stability that lets people's sort of brain unravel into these nice long loops, and so yeah, birthday parties, retirements, I wasn't at my best. But in my defense, I work with almost exclusively 75 to 80 year olds because I live in one of the only remaining gerontocracies, the university, which I cherish. <laughs> and so all of my friends were 80 and they understood. They agreed that it was ridiculous. Yeah. But also, I, I, I think you would, you would um, deploy your fantastic wit because what a, what a luxury what a, what a luxury, right. what a privilege yes. it is yes. to age. Yes. For you, looking at another life where yeah. you are measuring your life in two months or three months yeah. or six months in increments. I mean, that was what I think. Yeah. I know people who, right, cancer has become a chronic illness in our time, which is miraculous, yeah. but also a very new way to live. Because what, yeah. what, you, what you, when you were being when you go, when you would go for your two months, you you were only given another two months to live. Yeah, that's right. right. You weren't given the rest of what you would have thought would be the rest of a life. I think too, I was feeling so frustrated with, um, like I'd had this very surreal experience where I wrote an op-ed, but accidentally included all my information very close to the end, where like Gary from Indiana could email me, and there was a lot of Garys from Indiana <laughs> who uh, wrote to email, like to suggest ad advice for how to live. And in their versions of like, in my long life, I've learned that. And that, I think that just broke a part of my heart that imagined that I would see all the accumulation of everything I'd ever worked for, especially in the university where, I mean, every book takes a decade. So yeah. we think, you know. And you had done it. You'd, you'd just, you'd, you were walking that path. Let me feel it. Mm -hmm. Let me feel it, Gary. Um, <laughs> only one time, though, truly a guy named Gary from Indiana wrote me this super jerky note and then uh, on a church bulletin and then mailed it to me. 
which was a brave move because um, his church's email address was right there. And so I just emailed Gary's pastor. Dear Gary's pastor, I am a professor at a divinity school. I also teach pastors. We can imagine that Gary was not listening during your sermon. So that was, that's what I needed in that moment. Did you ever hear how that story went? If the pastor sat Gary down? I did. I did it. TBD. Um, so I I don't know. I really want to ask you about um, about I want to ask you about God, which is such an inadequate little tiny word that doesn't even yeah. you know we're always something we're pointing at rather than describing. Yeah. I don't know if um, I mean one one thing that occurs to me is uh, I think about this a lot, and I thought about it a lot. You know, immersing in you and your story, it is such a strange thing about us yeah. as creatures. That, that we have to hit bottom or face our mortality, right? That we have to come to the end of what we thought we knew and where our capacities give out mm. and to often grow and yes. deepen in ways that were not accessible to us before. Yes. So I don't know, that's about no, us. It's, I don't know. It feels that, to me like it's a little bit about if you, have, if you believe in God, what, is that, what does that say about yeah, us? What does it say about God? Right. Well, yeah, and, and that is one of the, I think, one of the hardest things to summarize, which you just did so beautifully about the, unless we feel our own breaking, it is hard to grow. And yet our culture has descriptions for that, you know, that everything happens for a reason or that it made me who I am today. And, um, and none of those get to... Um, they don't encapsulate the, the fear. Oh my gosh! Like the fear of like waking up in the morning and thinking it was a dream, and then remembering again. Like the 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 feeling like, not a bit of your effort is ever going to remake what you're you're losing and what you're taking away from everyone else. Mm. I mean, like who is? When I think about what my spirituality means in the context of cancer, I think I mostly think of that. Like, not the easier bits where I like <laughs> could read a tract or have a worldview anymore. Mm -hmm. I just like, I needed the, um, it's that feeling where you're like toes are curled over the edge and you can sort of feel the upward draft. And like, I needed in that to know that there was a, there was a God who, who could love me in that situation without me then believing that my love was going to earn me back what I had lost. So yeah, I think that was one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had, really, was hmm. I had been a kind of an earner-striver type, as you can imagine, um, especially yeah. even with spirituality. Like, I just I wanted to be good. And then in the hospital, as I felt so angry and so uh, broken, mm -hmm. I felt really, really loved, like bizarrely loved, by other people, but weirdly also about God. And I really kept that to myself because <laughs> it felt embarrassing, honestly, and hard to describe because it was, because it, it didn't mean that I wasn't um, unbelievably angry. I just felt somehow um, like cherished in the, in my one ridiculous life. Like, like my death would matter, even if it felt like it wouldn't matter. Did, did you um, did you inherit some of that from from the spiritual world of your mm. childhood? Mm. I guess I wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I wonder if because everybody, a lot of people get that. You know, I I also had a mm. religious upbringing that I wouldn't return to in that form, but I feel like I did. I this this was transmitted to me that. That behind this world there is love, yeah. And and I I wonder, and it sounds like you had that too, and it came back to you in the most improbable time. I don't think I'd ever felt this sort of strange. We're getting to the edge of my ability to describe things well, but like transcendent feeling, yeah. where because I, as much as I am a massive emoter, I haven't had a very emotional spiritual life. I just kind of had a set of beliefs that I really liked mm -hmm. and kind of kept on trucking. So often true of theologians. <laughs> so I was like, this looks good. Yep. <laughs> and it fits together and great. Um, 
but I, the the feeling where I didn't even know who I was anymore, except that I could tell that one hook I could hang it, it on was was the knowledge that somehow I was loved, like lily in the field loved, you know, bird in a tree loved, but like I think it's just I. I had spent so many months before I got diagnosed being treated so badly by the medical profession. I had been turned away so many times for care. And so by the time I got there, it was stage four. And that feeling of being worthless, honestly, I think that was the, um, sorry, that was the, I felt worthless. Mm -hmm. So to feel loved mm -hmm. felt like bonus. I wish I were sitting close. <laughs> would ruin that jumpsuit. <laughs> Sorry, I never bring Kleenex. <laughs> I really regret it. Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> Ultra soft. So, um, yeah, we have just lived through this collective trauma facing our mortality with the pandemic, with so much loss and such, a, such an experience of precarity. Yeah. And I think that these patterns that you describe and this need to control, which is so natural, so understandable, to control the narrative like it was, was also directly present in this. And you gave the commencement address at McAllister. And what was <laughs> I went to this hippie school that I love so much, McAllister College, just a drum circle away, if anyone ever wants to visit. <laughs> oh, great. Um, but you, so what was it? It was, the, it was the 2021 commencement for the class of 2020 and the class of 2020. Oh my gosh, those poor sweeties. And like they got nothing. you said that it was your, you said to them, it is my great privilege not to lie to you. I'm like the worst commencement speaker ever. <laughs> no, you aren't. When I'm like, there will be no reaching for the stars. <laughs> there will, there will be no anything is possible. <laughs> but I felt so bad for them because they, I mean, they they graduated into just nothing, and then these poor little stragglers came back a year later to put their hat on, and I was so happy for them. But it felt it was kind of it was it was perfect for me because I could go to a group of like survivors and just say um wow we are we really are changed aren't we and the regular probably kind of platitudes won't work on us will they but i don't think we're saying that out loud enough and it's again it's understandable but we we really want and physically need in our bodies to know that it's going to be okay and that we yeah. get back to normal and yeah and that's you, right you were and in fact you you wrote somewhere about so many people who are so bad <laughs> with your suffering were so bad with somebody else's suffering. But you had this uh, friend who is a pediatric oncologist, Ray. Yeah. And I feel like you offered these college graduates the, the better, uh, the, 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 the graceful, generative presence that he offered you. He was, he was so he was so good to me because I it was one of those you know pediatric oncology is I mean that is a that is a ministry and a calling yeah. and what I learned from him and from other doctors who are so good at that feeling because what I realized what hope is isn't sort of the like skipping to the end, just tell me everything's going to be okay, which is wonderful too. But it's the feeling where someone like keeps pace with exactly where you're at and like helps you find the edges of what you can hope for. Mm -hmm. And so I got great advice. Like, you know, when you make a hard decision, like I had to make a decision about, um, this really intense liver resection where I could either choose to take almost all of it and maybe die on the table, take almost part of it, and then most of the cancer would grow back, or it was just, it was all bad choices. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you need whatever we decide, and he kind of let me run to the end of my thoughts, let us, we'll put it on the calendar, and we'll say, in this moment, I can say to myself and others, I really did the best with what I knew. And like in all of our hopes, it feels good to say like, 
not everything is possible, but like what is possible today and then emotionally land on that in a way that's satisfying that, that felt like wisdom to me. I was really struck by how he, he asked you, um, did he say something like, how are, how are you doing? Are you, are you doing? Hmm. I don't remember this. Something about, he said, said, (laughs) it's weird when it happens to you. And later you're like, wow, that was really good. Um, He said something like, are you, are you okay? And you said to him, I don't know if that was the question. I am except for about 10 minutes a day. Yes, that's and right. he said to you, "I think most people would say, Great, you're okay, except for ten minutes a day." Yeah. And he said, "What are those ten minutes? What like? are those ten minutes look like?" Yeah, yeah. And that was that. That was so healing. Oh my gosh, yeah, because it's that you know, two a.m., two p.m. self, right? Two p.m. self. We've got day planners. I mean, people call us, and we've got the semblance of normalcy, but like two a.m. Like, who are we? What are our big fears? And, you know, I, I stopped sleeping. And so I would just wake up and it could, you know, it was, it was, it was the scariest time of night because there's no one to call yeah. and, and, and you're still you, you know, <laughs> you're not some like fugue state person. You're still you with all of your regular delusions and then just bonus fears <laughs> and, and I've really come to realize, like, knowing that that part of ourselves is still us and reminding myself of that at 2 p.m., I'm not a composed person. I'm somebody who needs to be, like, bubble-wrapped and hemmed in by other people's perceptions of me because at some point in 24 hours, I will lose it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you said something beautiful about touch a while ago. What was it? What was it? Oh my gosh. I don't know. But that feeling of touch when you're like coming undone and then. Yeah. Well, I just think, I also think that's something we, we're just very disembodied in this culture. And, totally. Um, I, I wonder if you have kind of a, how you think about embodiment, even as a theologian, or how this experience of being embodied, including something like, really, something really. Yes. It has such primacy as yeah. the important. I mean, one, I remember you, you wrote about when you went through that first passage of surgery and you couldn't touch your son. He couldn't touch you. Yes. And how exhausting that was yeah. to not be able to touch. Yeah. Yeah. I had a, a port and a chemotherapy bag, so I had to hold around, you know, I had to hold on my chemotherapy fluids with me for a lot of the week. And, and then, you know, you can't lift a certain amount. So I would see this little fishy faced chair burning around and like the ache of touch, the ache, and then the wanting to be like not medically touched all the time. And I, I do think it's kind of an amazing thing that our minds can do that we can, especially when we suffer, we can go in and out of our bodies. We can kind of put it down for a minute, which is our body's wisdom and response to trying to avoid the implications of, of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ability to have people who help bring us back to ourselves, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I don't think I had enough theological language to do that. I needed to borrow other people's. Because at first, I thought, well, um, <laughs> I just remember calling another person with chronic pain, and she was like, oh, yeah, mostly I just feel like a kind of garbage bag of jello and car parts <laughs> most of the time. But the, the feeling then in that moment when you suffer is like, well, do I lose, a, do I lose everything? Do I, do I lose, I think what I realized too, is I was losing the feeling of being young, that I had gotten too old too fast, because I really had tried to cram it in. <laughs> uh, you were kind of trying to cram it in oh even before gosh. you got sick. Yeah, I'm, I have like a in it to win it. <laughs> yeah. And I would like set dates. I'd be like, if I just make it to 50, you know, and then, and then you have a million friends who are 50. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, love, you know, everything comes undone. Everything gets put back together. We do this over and over. So finding ways to try to come back into a body that I kept putting aside has taken me longer, a lot longer than I thought. I think because I didn't realize that I was grieving, not just the experience of mortality, wanting to feel my age. Yeah. And then, you know, and then not being sure how to survive, I guess. 
do I get to be superficial again? You know, do I get to, is this? You get to be funny again. I think you're funny the whole way through. Thank you, lovey. Thank you. Um, are you, are you 40 now? Yeah, I'm crushing it. I'm, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, do you feel, do you feel young again? Because you really are. I know oh. people turn 40 and they think they're not. But I can tell you from another, another place on the spectrum. Yeah. Very, very young. Well, I think the, I think the absorption of the, like, aging is an effing privilege yeah. has really helped oh, me so feel great. great about birthdays not ever as an accomplishment but as that feeling where you get to look behind you and feel sort of like see all the little breadcrumbs scattered around leading you to the like the sparkliness of of that moment and that's usually just like reminders of crap other people did for you accomplishments you had that you promptly forgot and then decided weren't important and came up with new ones. <laughs> like just all the small absurdities that make us human, I guess. Mm -hmm. What at this point is your um, working definition of hope? Mm. Yeah. I think before I would have said it was something like certainty. Like I might have looked from a, like a doctrinal perspective and be like, well, Krista, thank you for asking. I actually have six things about God I'd love to tell you. Because, um, you know, because we have a big, depending on your story of faith, you know, you, you have a, it's a long time scale that it's the consummation of the earth and the great triumph of good over evil, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think hope now feels like God and love is like an anchor that's dropped way in the future. And I'm just, along with everyone else, being slowly pulled toward it. And that feeling won't always feel like the details of my life has somehow clicked into place and that I get to feel the fullness of my life. But that ultimately that this is a good story. It's just not only mine. And if I, if I ask you just, you know, right now, today, how would you just begin to think out loud about, you know, what, what your sense is of, you know, what the evolution has been of yeah. in your body and in your, in your understanding of what it means to be human? Yeah. Really small question. Yeah, right. But I'm right. up to What it. does it mean to be human? Yeah. Yeah. I think, cause it's, I think it started in that one feeling where something broke, where I had thought it was that I, could, uh, that I could stack up, that it was an accumulation, that it was some kind of building feeling. And then, and then that's a life. But that's like a very bucket listy, you know, collect all dozen <laughs> experiences. Go to Machu Picchu. Um, <laughs> hope you have your green smoothies. Um, feeling. And I would do that all the time with like building my morning routine and uh, always imagining that something just had to be like checked off. And I, I think once I knew that that's, the feeling of that is really satisfying, but you know, in, in any second in your life, you're sort of like wearing a sweater and then one thing pulls the thread and then you're just not wearing a sweater anymore. Knowing that, I think we really did transform a feel. I don't know how to describe it. It's like a, a feeling I had about myself that felt a little like, I don't know if it felt like pride, but it felt something like being self-constituted. And when that was gone, that humility, I think that I learned by being devastated. <laughs> I just, it changed how I see other people. And so I feel like I recognize it so much more quickly in other people, that cracked open feeling. Right. And then that kind of changed my work, is I feel not in any way dispassionately about other people. I feel intense, and <laughs> <laughs> which you can see so much crazy in my eyes right now. But like, I feel um, inside out. Mm. And I don't think I ever want to lose that. Mm. Boy, is that something that is hard won, right? Mm. Because... Again, we don't learn to be to live inside out. Yeah. And it's not rewarded and it's a vulnerable way to live. Yeah. That yeah. softness. But you see it in other people, right? And then you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're my people. Yeah. And I can see that from a hundred miles away. So 
Um, so that first academic book, or maybe I think it was your first, was Blessed. Yeah. And recently you've taken to writing blessings, <laughs> which is actually a practice and a, a word that I love. And um, I mean, would you just say a little bit about how you understand, and I'm going to have you, as we close, I'm going to have you read one oh, of them. Sure. And you've written these together with Jessica Ritchie, who's here somewhere. Um, devotionals for a life of imperfection, yeah. blessings for the lives we actually have. Yeah. Um, tell, me, tell me about what a blessing is. What yeah. is this thing we can do for each other? Yeah, I, I, it's so, because I lost so much of my language for prayer when I lost certainty. And I just didn't know how to, I needed a gentler, I think honestly more elastic language than I'd had. And, and I found it in blessing, which is a language of like my friend Stephen Chapman, who's a Hebrew scholar, writes it, describes it as emplacement, like the sense that you can reorder your spiritual world and be like, ah, this goes here, that goes there. And I kind of think of it like um, spiritual interior design, where you're like, ah, like this actually belongs much closer to the door. And, uh, and if we can learn to put things in their place, fear, hope, desire, when do I actually just need to be by myself? If we can put all of these in a kind of spiritual order, even when, our, and actually, especially when our lives are entirely out of order, then maybe we have more language to be cracked open to each other, the help we need, and then, and then I think to love. So yeah, we started, and we started doing it in the pandemic, mostly because we do these podcasts, and then at the end of this really lovely, rich conversation, we just all felt terrible for each other. We're like, well, everybody have a good, nope, no one's having a good day. <laughs> so we started writing these like, okay, like what, what gift did we just learn in that conversation? And then how do we try to use it to shape a blessing? And then it became a habit and a gift to me. Mm. So um, I just, it just something came to me from, from one of your books where you, you were having a conversation with your father, I think, and I think maybe you said that you wished you were a superhero. And he said, you are a superhero. I just wish you didn't have to be. Yeah. And I kind of feel that way sitting with you here. Love you. We're also, you, you've become such a teacher through experiences no, no one would ever wish that you had to have. Thanks. That you are our teacher. And I'm sure I speak for everybody to say we're so, what a gift it is to have Thanks. you here. Thank you, my love. So, I thought to close, and these will be our last words, I would just ask you to read, to oh, sure. offer one of these blessings up. Yeah, is it a sarcastic one? Because some of them are spicy. You, you, you like... <laughs> it's like... No, I think you like this one. <laughs> oh, good. Look at this. This is a real trust fall. Yes. You could have written something in the middle and I'd still read it. I just want you to know that. Aw, this is about befores and afters. Mm -hmm. And the thing at the end is like a thing my sister said to me on my worst day. So, all right, my loves. Thanks for being, isn't she honestly the most spectacular human being? Truly? Really? Ridiculous. Yes, next level. Next level person. All right, my dears. This is a blessing for befores and afters. If you've ever had a moment where things came undone, big or small, then this is all for you. Blessed are you when the shock subsides, when vaguely you see a line appear that divides before and after. You didn't draw it, and you can barely even make it out, but as surely as minutes add up to hours and days, here you are, forced into a story you never would have written. Blessed are you in the tender place of wonder and dread, wondering how to be whole when dreams have disappeared and part of you with them, where mastery, control, determination, bootstrapping, and grit are consigned to the realm of before, where most of the world lives, in the fever dream that promises infinite choices, unlimited progress, best life now. Blessed are we in the after, loudly shouting, is there anybody here? We hear the echo, the shuffle of feet, the murmur of others asking the same question, together in the knowledge that we are far beyond what we know. Show us a glimmer of possibility 
in this new constraint that small truths will be given back to us. We are held, we are safe, we are loved, we are loved, we are loved. And best of all, we are not alone. Thank you, Marie. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, everybody. Kate Bowler is an author, podcast host, and associate professor of American Religious History at Duke Divinity School. She studies the cultural stories we tell ourselves about success, suffering, and whether, or not, we're capable of change. Bowler wrote the New York Times best-selling memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, after being diagnosed with stage 4 cancer at age 35. Krista Tippett is the creator and host of On Being, the public radio show and podcast that takes up the questions of meaning in 21st century life. She founded and leads the On Being Project, a nonprofit media and public life initiative. Tippett launched On Being as Speaking of Faith in 2003 and was awarded the National Humanities Medal for her work in 2014. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.